Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and welcome to Talking Apes. Every year, it's estimated that over 3,000 of Africa's bonobos, chimps, gorillas, and smaller primates like monkeys are poached for their bushmeat, smuggled and sold through the illegal pet trade, or end up at the end of a chain outside a roadside bar or tourist hotel. It's not a pretty picture for primates, but it's all part of a huge and growing illegal trafficking nightmare. But for a few lucky ones, the nightmare ends in confiscation and rescue, and they end up at one of 23 PASA accredited sanctuaries in 13 countries across Africa. So who is PASA? To tell us about this relatively unknown but critically important organization is my guest today, Greg Tully. Greg is the executive director of the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance, or PASA. Under Greg's leadership, PASA has grown to become a major player in the hope and the future of Africa's great apes and primates. This is Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is a podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Greg, welcome to Talking Apes. It's really great to have you on. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Greg and I have known each other for uh, a while, and uh, we happen to live in the same city, Portland, Oregon. Um, but it's still we don't we don't bump into each other all the time. We, we're sort of on the other side of the city, and especially during uh, this this COVID pandemic, um, neither one of us have been out running around as much as we'd like. I bet. As I said in the intro, you covered twenty three sanctuaries in thirteen countries. Is that true? Yes, that is true. Why do you need 23 sanctuaries? I mean, four or five, I could see, but... Yeah, we need many more than 23 sanctuaries, actually. I mean, one of the one of the most difficult questions that we get from people is when they say, when are you going to start a sanctuary in Angola? We need a sanctuary in Guinea-Bissau. We need a sanctuary in Central African Republic. And so um, there's actually, there's there are still a lot of gaps that we aren't able to fill yet. Um, so why do we need so many sanctuaries? Well, each of these, I mean, we call them sanctuaries, but um, they really do so much more than that. You know, they're all running you know, ed- education programs, community-based conservation programs. A lot of these organizations are, you know, working with governments on law enforcement and lobbying to create new national parks. And um, and there, there's a huge need for these grassroots organizations that are working on the ground to protect wildlife and their habitat. You know, they're the the big global organizations that tend to, most of the time to work on a, a landscape scale or to using a policy approach. And um, and there's really a, a desperate need for organizations that, you know, that understand the local culture and know people in the community, know community leaders, have good relationships with government officials who are in, involved in um, fighting wildlife trafficking and protecting national parks, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, there's, well, there's absolutely a need. Well, let's back up a minute then and, and explain. So you're the executive director of PASA and let's just maybe give me the, the short version of who, who, what, where, why is PASA? If we have all these sanctuaries, why do we need yet another organization? It might make the most sense if I start with how PASA was created. Um, so going back 21 years ago, 
uh, you know, there were more and more primate sanctuaries being created in Africa. Um, a lot of them were started by someone who rescued a chimp and then rescued another chimp and then accidentally founded a sanctuary. And um, people working in primate conservation and primatologists in Africa were seeing all these different sanctuaries forming, but they're seeing a, a lack of communication. And so they organized a meeting in Uganda in 2000 and brought together the founders and leaders of, of these different sanctuaries. And um, a major question they came up with this was, do you all want a way to communicate more effectively with each other and stay in touch? And the sanctuaries said they, they really do. You know, a lot of them were just stumbling through on their own, trying to, um, you know, create best practices from scratch and, um, learning how to navigate governments and uh, confiscations and animal care. And so there was really a, a need, you know, voiced by the, by the sanctuaries. And it was really the sanctuaries that created PASA. You know, over the next couple of years, it became a registered nonprofit based in Portland in the U.S., but um, it was created by these sanctuaries in Africa, and that's still very much our focus. So, um, you know, which I, th I think that's important. It really gets down to the core values of PASA. It wasn't started by some American people who wanted to do some good in Africa. It was, you know, created by the people who were running these sanctuaries who wanted to have a uh, better communication with each other. So PASA started by having um, a meeting every year, bringing together the leaders of these sanctuaries, like that first meeting, and uh, pretty quickly developed a lot of other roles. Um, you know, we now have an accreditation process where all of our members meet high standards for animal care and for organizational sustainability. Um, we give emergency grants because, you know, things go wrong in Africa pretty regularly. Um, we, yeah, we, we help them with their education programs. We help them with networking. So we've started to fill a lot more roles over time. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, maybe explain a little bit about, I mean, we use that word sanctuary, how is how is a, a a PASA member sanctuary in in let's say Gabon or Cameroon or Uganda or something? How is that different than a zoo? Um, oh yeah, that, that's a question that we get a lot. Um, well, even the word sanctuary is used in different meanings by different people. But I'll, I'll speak specifically about PASA member sanctuaries. Um, all of the animals that they take in are are rescued. Um, our members only breed animals if it's part of a, a reintroduction program. And so the, you know, the focus is really on addressing the problems of, you know, the bushmeat trade and the animals that are orphaned by the trade and illegal wildlife trafficking and, you know, people illegally keeping animals, keeping wildlife as pets. So the, uh, the focus is really on addressing those problems and rescuing animals as part of solving those problems, as opposed to, the focus being on, you know, breeding animals in order to maintain a population in captivity um, for the purposes of visitors or for educating people. Um, I mean, a lot of the sanctuary directors say they would love it if their sanctuary went out of business, if there was uh, no more need for animals to be rescued and they wouldn't need to continue the animal care and could focus their efforts a lot more on other aspects of conservation. Hmm. Um, I mean, that's, that's not going to happen in the near future, unfortunately, but that's our a longer term dream. Yeah, well, no, not if it sounds like you need even more sanctuaries in other countries. It sounds like the the problem sounds like it's one that's growing. And and we know from the work that we do that it is a growing problem. 
there, there seems to be more and more confiscations, and especially this past year or so with, with COVID, it seems that oddly, and maybe you could shed some light on that, but it, it seems that there's been an increase in the number of rescues in this past year, year and a half. Why is that? Yeah, we've we've gotten a lot of reports from members all around Africa of you know increased confiscations, increased signs of trafficking. I mean, I don't know of any um, formal research that has been done on this or any quantified data, but um, you know, the people that we talk to around Africa widely believe that you know, because of the pandemic, a lot of government officials have been working at home instead of working in their posts. Um, you know, there are fewer rangers patrolling the national parks now, um, you know, fewer security at the border crossings. So this has created a, a lot of openings for trafficking. Hmm. So it's um, sadly, as a result of COVID, it seems to be easier to smuggle wildlife now because there's just less less presence of security. Has that changed some of your focus as as an organization? I mean, do you, do you see that you're doing some things that you weren't planning on doing because of this? I wouldn't say it's it's changed our focus because you know the rescues and especially linking the rescues to law enforcement um, has always has been a focus, but we're just doing a lot more of it. I mean, one example that comes to mind is um, Takuyama Chimpanzee Sanctuary in Sierra Leone. I mean, in a normal year, they might rescue a few chimps, maybe not even that many, and in the last I'd say in the last year and a half or so, they've rescued twenty three chimpanzees. This is a huge burden for them. Um, we recently worked with them to run a fundraising campaign to enable them to triple the size of their enclosure for baby orphan chimps because it was bursting at the seams. So, um, so it hasn't changed our direction, but we've had to focus a lot more on supporting our members to be able to accommodate all these newly confiscated animals. Well, I know that a lot of the sanctuaries depend on, um, while they don't, you know, they don't really have a lot of tourists necessarily coming and going, um, even though um, from the few that I visited that they do have some tourist base, especially local schools may show up or something for their education programs. But one of the places that um, it seems that a lot of the sanctuaries depend on is volunteers paying to come. And so there's some uh, residual income that comes from from volunteers and, and volunteers raising money. And that, and that seems like it's been a big hit in their revenue stream this year, uh, the last, you know, 18 months because of COVID. Yeah, it's been devastating. Um, we, you know, the, the PASA members are really diverse. You know, some of them, especially in East Africa, they, they do get a lot of revenue from typical tourism. But, um, but you're absolutely right. A, a lot of them uh, get a substantial amount of money from volunteers who specifically go to Africa to be able to volunteer with primates. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's been shocking. I and mean, some of them, especially in the early days of the pandemic, you know, many of them had to pause a lot of their programs, you know, the education work and the, the conservation programs. Some of them had to lay off staff, sadly. And, um, and PASA, as the alliance, one of our roles is filling in gaps for our members. And so we um, basically dropped everything and did a really strong fundraising drive to, to try to raise support to ensure that none of our members had to shut down permanently. And, um, to help them, you know, maintain high quality animal care and restart their programs as soon as possible. And I'm happy to say, I mean, that the early days of the pandemic were really worrying, but I'm happy to say that it, it was really successful. Uh, we raised far more support for, far, far more money for emergency support for members than we ever had before. Um, 
Now, altogether, we gave um, $330,000 in emergency grants to 18 of our members to help them get through the pandemic. And um, yeah, and, and none of our members had to close. And, and is, is most of that support coming from individuals who are donating to PASA? Or is that through? It's it's a mix. Um, it's a mix of yeah, individual donors around the world and foundations, zoos, um, other nonprofits. I mean, a lot of a lot of organizations that aren't normally grant giving organizations stepped up and helped us because they understand how critical the role of these sanctuaries is. Right. Wow. So it was interesting to see because of the pandemic. You know, a lot of our a lot of the the um, sort of obvious funders had to scale back their giving because of the pandemic, because they were having their own financial struggles. But, um, you know, we, we really, a, a lot of people who we never expected to give supported really generously for the sanctuaries. Well, it's, uh, that kind of leads me to another question I had for you. And that was, I mean, you've worked in the course of your career, you've worked with a number of nonprofit animal welfare groups um, around the world. I mean, here in the U.S., I know you were in Nepal and in different aspects. And this is the the first time, if, I, if I'm correct, it's the first time that you worked with primates and you came to work for a primate group. How is that different? How is working with primate sanctuaries different than working with other kinds of animal groups? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um I can start by saying I, I got a PhD in biology years ago, so that was um, focused on animals in the wild. And um, and as I was finishing that up, I turned to the nonprofit sector and um, eventually got involved in organizations that largely help deal with help to manage stray dog populations in uh, in Nepal and in Thailand. So it was exciting to become involved in uh, wildlife again when I took the job with PASA. Like it's kind of getting back to my roots a little bit. Um, and some, there are some real strong similarities. You know, managing an animal care facility in a developing country is has a lot of similarities, whether it's a dog shelter in Asia or a primate sanctuary in Africa. Um, in I, I used to run Soy Dog Foundation in Thailand. And, and in Southeast Asia, there's a, a dog meat trade where dogs are smuggled you know, largely from Thailand into Vietnam and, uh, and some other countries in the area. And it's similar in some ways to the bushmeat trade in Africa. You know, this sort of illegal wildlife trade that's just out in the open and, every, you know, it's, it's not even hidden. So, um, so there are a lot of similarities, but obviously there are a lot of huge differences as well. You know, there's a, I definitely had a lot to learn when I started. Um, one thing is protecting endangered species rather than stray dogs and cats where there's an overpopulation. It's, uh, you know, there's some... You know, obviously, fundamental differences there. Um, well, I would think there would be a lot of bureaucratic issues too, because you know we're looking at um, it with the sanctuaries, the pasta sanctuaries. Um, I mean, we're looking at a lot of endangered species, a lot of them that are on the CITES list, and you know other other lists that have you know can't be tra- are not legally allowed to be traded back and forth. So, I'd, how how much of the politics do you find yourself getting caught up in? Yeah, that that can be very complicated. Um, fortunately, when when um, it comes to light that a primate needs to be rescued, that's in a country where there's already a PASA member. Generally, that PASA member can handle it themselves. You know, they have strong relationships with government agencies, with law enforcement, and um, and and they can take care of all of that. But when the animal's in a country where there isn't a sanctuary, or at least not a proper sanctuary, often 
Pasa steps in and coordinates that rescue. And, um, and yeah, it can be tremendously complicated. Um, yeah, with endangered species, you typically need CITES permits from the the government that the animal is traveling from and the, the government of the sanctuary where it's traveling to. Um, you can need health inspections. I mean, with some of these, especially with great apes, with these high-profile rescues, it just seems like every government agency wants to get involved. You know, the, the foreign ministry, the environmental ministry, Interpol, it seems like everybody starts demanding um, – uh, a letter of support from their counterpart in the other country. So that, yeah, these um, rescues of great apes and other endangered species gets extremely bureaucratic. And it's it's frustrating. Sometimes animals are stuck for months or even years in, in, in horrific situations because we're, um, you know, maybe we built a relationship with one government official, but then there was an election, they lost their job, there's a new guy, he doesn't know who we are, we have to go back and start over again. Um, yeah, it's that's one of the big challenges. Another thing that I think a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't understand all the facets of these international rescues of endangered species. You know, they don't understand we can't just drive out and pick the animal up and drive it to a sanctuary. It involves you know, not just the permits, but cargo flights and vets who are actually trained to deal with wildlife. And in some of the countries we work in, there are no vets who have wildlife experience, so we have to actually arrange for a, a primate vet to fly in do health inspections, blood tests, permits. It's it's uh, it's not easy. Oh, man. And the cost to that must be enormous if you have to start, you know, flying in vets from other places. And I would assume, you know, there has to, there has to be a vet that's recognized by the government that you're going into so that the work they do will be, you know, authentic and recognized as well. So, yeah. What a, what a nightmare. I and, and I know it can be, a, I know with CITES it can be, a, an incredible nightmare. I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was in a situation where we heard about a uh, baby gorilla, lowland gorilla that was being held and they were trying to get it out of the country um, to a sanctuary in another country. And because of all the bureaucracy, it ended up taking over a year. Um, and in the course of that year, the baby gorilla died. Um, and, and it just, it you know, it was so frustrating for um, the couple of people that were involved um, that I knew because they were just saying, you know, this is like one of those things where a couple hundred dollars in illegal CITES paper and you could just go get it. You know, it was like if you if you wanted to cheat the system, you could just go get this thing. But everybody was trying to play by the rules, obviously. And, uh, and you could, and I mean, the feeling was that there were enough bureaucrats sitting in the way that were saying they want each one wanted their cut of it to make this thing go through and at the end of the day none of them really cared if this thing lived or died and it ended up dying so it, it can be a I, I mean my my heart goes out to you because i know you must be at the you know you're at the sharp end of that um in trying to make that happen and sometimes it just gets really frustrating yeah is this the gorilla in angola that you're talking about yeah that was one of them yeah one of them yeah, 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 that was heartbreaking. Um, yeah, it's it's really it's devastating when you know we spend months trying to rescue an animal and then we find out that it, it died of neglect or it died of a a disease that would have been treatable if there was a vet on site. It's yeah. hard. It, it, indeed, I mean, it it's, is. it's even harder for the people on the ground. You know, the the sanctuaries that are directly taking care of these animals and the the vets that are traveling to to visit them. It's it's a lot harder for them than it is on us. Yeah, I wanted to, um, I wanted 
turn turn the conversation for just a minute, if we, if we could. I mean, PASA is back to, to what PASA is and what PASA does. And I know that um, it's sort of struggled over the years. I think while it has a value to the members, um, the 23, you know, the 23 sanctuaries in, in Africa, the public hasn't really known who and what you are. Yeah, that the spotlight is definitely on the primates and the sanctuaries, and it should be. Um, you know, they're the ones on the ground doing the, the gritty work all day. Also, um, you know, I said that it started for communication among the sanctuaries, and over time it, it developed different roles. But, um, you know, the time that I've been with PASA, we've really refocused into two priority areas. Um, one of them is building the capacity of our member sanctuaries, uh, you know, basically helping them to achieve their missions better. You know, this includes conferences that, well, when there's not a pandemic, we have conferences every year, trainings, um, workshops, um, a lot of work like that. And the the other side of that is um, more conservation focus to create a cohesive movement to protect primates across Africa, you know, giving all these organizations a bigger voice. You know, our members are generally focused on one country or even one small area within a country. And so um, as, as an alliance, we can really give them a, a much louder voice where we can make an impact across Africa. You know, we have, we can get more credibility from government officials and from big conservation organizations as an international alliance compared to as a, you know, an organization providing direct support on the ground. So this, I think this is really critical for the future of PASA. You know, the, the threats to African primates are so big. You know, we're dealing with issues like global wildlife trafficking, the meat crisis. We need a big movement to, to fight these threats. And so for PASA to, to become more and more relevant and to, you know, hopefully um, save some of these species from extinction, we, uh, we need this bigger, more unified approach. Are there any groups out there that are doing what you're doing? I, I don't, none jump to mind, um, but is it, are there any groups with as much pressure as there is on great apes and primates um, and by extension, their habitat? And it's a habitat that in, in the case of Africa, I mean, we're talking about the world's second largest rainforest on the, on the planet in the Congo Basin. So is there, um, is there anyone else that's really taking up that charge or is PASA the only one? Um, well, around the world, there are other sanctuary associations, you know, in Europe, in Asia, in the U.S. And, um, but there isn't anything like PASA in Africa. And to, um, I, mean, I, I don't want to put down our counterparts in other countries, in other continents, but um, I, I feel like um, PASA compared to other similar associations, it's really more of an alliance, really more of um bringing groups together with a common focus and providing a lot more direct support and capacity building. So it's, I would say it's a really unique association. So do you see your role as PASA evolving as uh, one that, that, that not only is there to support your members, but also can step out of that role and be the voice um, in places like Washington, D.C.? where policy is made or the places, you know, in Europe when policy is being made. I mean, do you see that as a growing role for PASA or a need? Um, yeah, there? absolutely. Um, and I mean, I'll say 
when it comes to policies and um, you know, similar areas, we always look to our members to let us know what their needs are and what their priorities are. You know, I don't, I don't want to be that American guy in America who's trying to decide what should happen in Africa. But um, absolutely, as PASA grows and as um, you're becoming more focused on these bigger threats to primates, we're, we're acting as representatives of our members much more. For example, this morning, I was at a CITES standing committee meeting. It was, it was remote. Everyone was, was doing it electronically. It was um, from 3 to 6 in the morning here in Portland. And, um, and, and for those who may not know, CITES is? The Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. So essentially, it's a UN treaty that regulates um, trade in endangered species of you know, animals and plants. And um, and it's it's studies can be really valuable for things like you know let's say um, the flow of rhino horn from rain, rhino range countries to Vietnam and China where it's it's sold commercially um, elephant ivory tiger bones and um, and definitely primates as well and many many other species I mean CITES is the only thing it's, it's the only um, agency that is regulating this on an international scale. You know, every country has their own their wildlife authorities and trade departments, but, um, but CITES is the only one that acts as an umbrella worldwide. So, you know, PASA members are very unlikely to spend three hours in the middle of the night at, on a CITES meeting, but, um, but representing these sanctuaries across Africa, it's a really important role for me to have. Mm. It's, it's, how big a partner is CITES? I know that we, you know, it's it's pretty common in the conservation world to to dump on CITES, um, and 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 sometimes they deserve it. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's frustrating. I mean, you hear these stories of uh, of you know briefcases full of CITES papers that are signed that can be sold, you know, to not even the highest bidder, just anybody with a you know, a hundred bucks can get one of them. And with one of them that is signed, it's potentially, you you can start, you can ship a baby chimp out of a country and off to another country. And um, so there is, CITES has come under a lot of criticism, but yet it it is the only thing of its kind that we have to work with. Is that not right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I agree that CITES, uh, a lot of the criticism is warranted. Um you know, it, it was set up to prevent trade and species from going to the extent that it would drive them to extinction. But, you know, CITES, it's a trade, it's, it's a trade treaty. It's not a conservation treaty. It's not an animal welfare treaty. It's about trade. Um, it's not about stopping trade. It's about making sure that it, it's sustainable. And so um, and that's one of the many limitations of CITES. Another one is that the enforcement of CITES is left to each individual country. Um, some countries are really stringent and conscientious with other ones. Like you said, I mean, anything goes. It's easy to slip someone some money and uh, get a signed CITES permit. And in the worst cases, um, CITES makes it easier to essentially launder wildlife. Um, hmm. I mean, one example. Yeah, no, sorry. no, go ahead. That's that's just interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. It does make it it does make it uh, easier. Go yeah, ahead. Without a CITES permit, someone might need to, um, you know, use a private plane to fly an animal to a different country or, um, you know, 
bribe some officials, hide an animal in the bottom of a box full of some other kinds of materials. But if you have a fraudulent CITES permit, you just show that to everyone and you walk on the plane and um, it's actually easier for you. Um, one, one issue that we've been dealing with is um, the sale of chimpanzees from South Africa to China where they're sold to zoos. And you know, about a, a year from and a half South ago, Africa. I think, from South Africa. But there, there are no native chimps to South Africa. Exactly. That's what makes us all very suspicious. Um, according to the, the paperwork, including the CITES documents, it was uh, one or two years ago, 18 chimpanzees were, were sent from South Africa to China. And the paperwork said they were all bred in zoos and you know, other wildlife facilities in South Africa. And the people I've talked to in South Africa had said they don't know of any facilities that could breed that many chimps. So um, it seems far more likely that these chimps were smuggled from chimpanzee range countries in Central Africa down to South Africa, but just by land and trucks, you know, going through probably uh, dusty little border crossings where it's relatively easy to bribe an official. And then once they're in South Africa, they arrange some CITES permits. And, um, and if those permits say the animals are bred in South Africa, animals bred in captivity have less protection from CITES than animals that are born in the wild. And so it suddenly makes everything else a lot easier. I mean, no one has found hard evidence of this, but, but like I said, um, people are, are very skeptical about these 18 chimps appearing that were all, all bred in captivity in South Africa. Um, um, I don't want to dump on CITES too much, but one other challenge that we have is um, when there's a disease outbreak at a sanctuary, they often want to send blood samples to a lab to, you know, to identify the disease. And in a lot of African countries, there aren't any labs that can perform the necessary tests, so they need to send the blood to another country. But blood of endangered species is protected by CITES. So, I mean, there's obviously, there's, there's no commercial trade in chimpanzee blood. There's no market for it but they still might need to wait for months for a CITES permit to send a blood sample to a lab to get it tested in order to treat the animal for the disease they have. So it, uh, it can be frustrating. But on the other hand, as you said, there's, there's, no, there's nothing like CITES. I mean, I still think the world's a much better place with CITES than without it. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's amazing. I mean, and it's probably just one of many stories. We'll have to, Maybe that's one of the things we have to do here at the Talking Apes is we need to get somebody on from CITES and, and walk them through it. That might be a <laughs> trickier conversation. Um, maybe we should have a whole panel. We'll have you and Ophir uh, Drury, who's going to going to be with us on a future episode and oh, great. a few others. And we'll, we'll have you all on and grill the CITES uh, spokesperson <laughs> together. We can all um, vent and let out our frustrations. Yes, exactly. I wanted to ask you, running running a nonprofit is uh, can be a very frustrating experience, and especially running one like you're like running PASA because you're running it as you said from afar. You're not the one on the ground. Um, what motivates you every day? What motivates you to to do the work when and especially during times like we we're experiencing now, where you don't even have the the joy of getting to go to to Africa and visit the sanctuaries? Yeah, that's, that's a really thoughtful question. You know, in my, my last couple jobs, I was, you know, even though I was still doing administrative work all day, I could look out the window of my office and see the animals that we're rescuing and protecting. Um, and yeah, with PASA, it's, it's far more removed and halfway around the world from the animals. But in normal times, at least I get to, um, you know, tra I tra travel a lot for work normally. And so that usually includes a couple trips a year to Africa. Um, 
you know, I always try to combine, maybe I go for a conference, um, visit a couple sanctuaries, meet with some officials, things like that. But it's, it's been tough lately. It's, um, can be hard to keep up the, the motivation, especially when things are frustrating. But I would say for me, um, I mean, the, the successful rescues are really what keeps me going emotionally more than anything else. Um, I, I was saying earlier, the rescues can be really challenging, but also, um, for example, there were 20 monkeys from DR Congo that were stolen from the forest in various places. Um, whoever was, the smugglers got fraudulent permits. They drove these animals across Zambia into Zimbabwe, and they were stopped by government officials there. And as soon as we found out about this, we reached out to our numbered sanctuaries in DRC because the, whenever possible, we want to repatriate animals to their home country so they have a chance of being returned to the wild. Um, Jack Sanctuary agreed to take these monkeys, and then we spent four or five months just almost every day arguing with government officials, trying to get better care for the monkeys and get the right permits and get approval from all these levels. So, But finally... These 20 monkeys are now at Jack Sanctuary living in big, beautiful enclosures. And um, and knowing that we were a part of that, really, stories like that keep me going. That You used a word that um, I think a lot of people might not think of when it comes to um, to wildlife, and especially you know with great apes or primates, and that's repatriation. Um, I mean, we tend to think of that as, as something that applies to humans only. Um, but that it's an interesting... Um, it's an interesting point because there are countries that um, it's it's a wild it's a, an exotic wild animal in that country. Um, you know, for example, you know, there's a um, chimpanzee in in Zambia, and all of the chimpanzees, I think, well over a hundred now um, that live there, a hundred thirty or plus, I guess, those are all sort of expats. You know, they're all. There, there are chips, I think, 19 countries in total. Um, to are, to my knowledge, Chimpunchi is the only place on Earth where there are all four chimpanzee subspecies. Exactly. Yeah. And and some come I, – I, in in some of the pieces that we've we've done for our Apes Like Us YouTube channel, I, uh, filming there, I know that they have, they have a chimp that came from Argentina. It was like in a zoo or a circus from there. I mean, they've got chimps from – that aren't just from the range countries in, in Africa. So um, this idea that uh, these animals would come into a country and if they're confiscated and they weren't from that country, they might, I, I mean, what happens to them? Do they end up in the local zoo? Do they end up being ex exported in some way? Um, how does that all work? Yeah, well, this is, um, it's actually the, Prioritizing repatriation comes from CITES. It's a CITES principle that when animals are confiscated, if it's feasible to send them back to their home country, if their home country is even known, that should be the priority. And so, so when possible, we do that. A main reason being, as much as possible, we'd like to see these animals reintroduced to the wild. And so if they're in their home country, um, then we, we're more confident that that will be successful and more confident that it will not be disturbing to um, the genetics of local populations. Obviously, there's, there are species and subspecies and populations within that and reach genetically distinct. Um, but in many cases, it's just not feasible. That's why it's, it's so valuable that um, sanctuaries that aren't in range countries exist. Like, I'm just looking at chimpanzees. There's Chi in Zambia, Sweetwaters in Kenya, Chimp Eden in South Africa. And they're all in countries where there aren't wild chimpanzees, but 
um, but they have a critical role because they are able to accept confiscated and rescued animals from all over the world. You know, most of the chimp sanctuaries that are in range countries are almost at capacity just with the confiscated animals from within their own country. So they, they just don't have the bandwidth to take in animals from Argentina, Iraq, France, wherever. Um, but so um, it's, it, again, this ties back to this um, alliance concept with PASA, where you have different members that are really diverse and they all have different roles. You know, some of them are focusing on one country, some of them rescuing animals from all over Africa and even further. And so this, by working together, it really makes us a lot stronger. And, well, and it, I think it really does illustrate the need for all of those sanctuaries. As you know, how we started this this podcast off, we were talking about is there really a need for twenty three sanctuaries? And it, I mean, that I think helps illustrate the fact that yeah, there there's a need for them. Not only a need for them, but there's probably a need for two or three more if if the funds were there to do to do so. I want to pivot uh, for just a moment, if we can. You know, part of us starting this podcast, Talking Apes, was to have folks on like you and to create more awareness about what's happening to primates and great apes. Because it's it's really shocking sometimes. I think you go out to talk to people, and I know you speak publicly, um, at how much people think they know but really don't know about, not only about the species themselves, like what is the difference between an orangutan and a chimp and a gorilla and a bonobo and so forth, but also what the issues are that they're facing. You know, palm oil, I know, is is coming back to Africa in a big way. And we think of palm oil as being sort of a Southeast Asia, Borneo, Sumatra issue. But oil palm originated in West Africa, Western Congo Basin, as a plant, and it's on its way back. And it could have devastating uh, impacts on the Congo Basin and, and in turn on the species that live there and like many of the monkeys and, and the great apes that are there. So just becoming aware of, of what's happening is, is sometimes is, is equally as important because you have buying power. Chocolate, much of the chocolate of the world comes from West Africa. Those are areas where um, levels of deforestation and it has a huge impact on the, on the monkeys of that area. Yeah, yeah, palm oil is one of my biggest worries. Um, you know, until now, the biggest extractive industries have included mining and logging, which are absolutely devastating. But um, yeah, if, if Africa starts to have these massive palm oil plantations like you see in Southeast Asia, it, it would really be a tragedy. Um, and the, the bushmeat trade is another issue that you know, very few people worldwide realize. Um, it's, it's arguably the biggest threat now to uh, African primates. And you know, most of it is within Africa, and um, but also some of this bushmeat is, is smuggled worldwide to the U.S. and elsewhere. So, um, yeah, raising awareness is is a really essential role for for you and for FASA. Yeah, I mean, just take that one for example. I mean, I think it's really important for people to understand that those two are those multiple. There's multiple impacts to the bushmeat trade, and there's multiple connections to it. I mean, a lot of these palm oil plantations, the, the deforestation that goes on um, in logging, they fuel the bushmeat trade as well, because a lot of those camps, the meat that the, the loggers and the palm oil workers and everything use is bushmeat. A lot of that trafficking is interconnected, and I think that's why it's, it is, as I'm sure you have found in, in the work that you're doing at PASA, that... That's part of the reason it's so difficult to put a halt to any of this is it's it's just not 
push one button and it all stops. It, it, that button is connected to a lot of other buttons and trying to get one of them pushed is sometimes a challenge. I mean, even let's say um, an African government approves a new mining operation. You think, well, okay, mining, that's, that's not good. But if that mining operation involves cutting a road through wilderness for miles and miles to get to it, yeah, that's exposing wildlife populations that have never seen people before to, you know, there are areas that a hunter might have had to walk for days to get to before. And because of one road, they can just drive a few hours, shoot some animals, bring them into the truck and drive them back again. And um, it's, yeah, you're right. All of these factors, it's palm oil, hunting, logging, mining, international wildlife trade, it's all interrelated. I mean, a lot of the, most of the uh, apes that are rescued by possum member sanctuaries are orphaned by the bushmeat trade. You know, the their families are killed for meat and the babies are too small to be worth slaughtering for meat. So, you know, maybe they're sold to somebody at a market and that person keeps it, maybe sells it to someone else. Um, so in some cases, people will try to smuggle it to say a zoo in China or to an exotic animal collection in the Middle East. The animal might be confiscated at the airport or confiscated at a checkpoint, and then it will end up at a possum member sanctuary. So um, yeah, all, all of these threats are interconnected and there's no, no simple solutions. I really appreciate you kind of going into that a little bit because I think that's that's something that a lot of people aren't really aware of. Something else I wanted to ask you was a lot of the sanctuaries depend on volunteers and donations. But so what what can people at home do to help out and help PASA help the sanctuaries and and really have some impact on the survival of great apes and primates? Oh yeah, that's that's a really essential question. Um I could say for, for PASA and our member sanctuaries, everything we do is only possible because of donations. You know, people around the world donate all, all sorts of amounts of money. And so um, that's, that, that's a critical way for people to help. You know, they can go to PASA.org and donate. Um, also, um, following us on social media is a great way to get more informed about the issues facing primates and the work that sanctuaries are doing. Um, you know, our you can find us at Pasa Primates on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Um, so yeah, following us and yeah, even if, if donating isn't feasible, you know, sharing posts with your friends is is a really great way to raise awareness. Um, yeah, as a yeah, as a small nonprofit that is an umbrella for a lot of other small nonprofits, yeah, raising awareness is key. Um, you know, even just talking to your friends and family about um, what's you know, things like the butch meat trade and wildlife trafficking, um, that this, this is really important for bringing these issues more present in people's minds. So um, everyone's more more motivated to take action. You know, before we before I let you go today, I just I have one question I want to ask you, and that was, you've been in you've been in this job now for six, seven, eight years. Six six years. Six years. So. In those six years, is there is there one ape or primate that sort of captured your heart, captured your curiosity, your passion that sort of, you know, when things are going less than perfect, um, sitting sitting in Portland, Oregon and managing all of this, is there kind of one that you go, okay, that, that was worth taking this job, that was worth having that experience? Yeah, I, hmm. I wouldn't say there's one individual, but a lot of the times I think about the most recent one that we helped to rescue. Um, and that's, 
you know, whether it's a single chimpanzee where someone reached out to us about a chimp in a horrible situation and reached out to a sanctuary, or I gave that example of these 20 monkeys that got the jack sanctuary. I'm just thinking about the, the most recent animals where we, I feel like, yeah, we, we directly gave that animal a much better life. You know, we saved it from cruelty. It's, you know, I, I'm seeing pictures and videos of it climbing trees. That's, um, so I wouldn't say there's one individual, but uh, those, those rescues really keep me going. Great. Well, Greg, thank you so much um, for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're you're crazy busy with sitting in on on CIDES meetings and everything else that's going on. But um, I appreciate you taking the time to explain what PASA is, what PASA is growing to be, and uh, under your leadership, it's it's been it's been amazing to watch. So thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's um, it's. You have such a valuable role here, raising awareness about apes and ape conservation worldwide. It's uh, it's we need a lot more work like what you're doing. Once again, I'd like to thank Greg Tully for giving us some insight into the convoluted world of rescuing and saving great apes and primates in Africa. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where every episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can always email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work pulling together another great podcast. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. For Talking Apes, I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening.